scripture this morning is from Psalm, or is Psalm 34. Join me in a short prayer for illumination before we read God's word. O Lord, our God, humble our hearts and let us hear your word. Open us to what you want us to learn today and let Matt be a vessel of your good news as he preaches to us this morning. Praise be to the risen Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God, Psalm 34. This is in your bulletin on page 6, or in your Bible. Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out when he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. We wrapped up for the summer a series on the books of the Bible, book by book, which is really enjoyable and very, very challenging to preach through. Amen? <laughs> Corey preached for me last week. For you, actually. And we're going to start a series next week on um, 
some of the great books that are written for not so great reasons, specifically Corinthians this next fall. A delightful book, but a challenging book. And in between series, I like to go back to the Psalms for a number of reasons. But the chief one is they are so useful to us. And they're useful not because of um, their historical value. This is one of the uh, minority psalms where we know the circumstances it was written. They're useful to us because they guide us in doing life. And when I say that, that sounds normal. That sounds like a very pastory thing to say. But if you've read the psalms, you know that many of them are very angry. In this, David speaks very aggressively about his enemies, even though he's in a moment of of having overcome them through an odd story that I'm not going to get into because when we have the context of the psalm, we don't have the psalm in order to understand the context. We have the psalm because this is how we get to respond in all of the seasons of life. I hope that you're in a a season of what I'm going to call orientation. Your head is not spinning. Your heart is not beating faster than it's actually beating. You know, when you feel that way, when you feel amped up and you check your pulse and you're like, I'm actually not, what's going on here? Your emotions are going. Your body's not out of sync. You don't feel off. You're oriented. You can enjoy sitting outside for a few minutes, even if it's a little buggy. Your relationships don't seem... not worth it or untenable or too difficult. I think the best way for us to utilize the Psalms in day-to-day life, and this is not the only, the Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament. This, what I'm about to say does not exhaust their importance. But for the everyday life of faith, they are so valuable to us to teach us how to relate to God in all seasons. And for me, this is actually the most challenging genre is the genre of orientation. So it's orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Those of you that have been at the church as long as I have, are like, I know these categories. We have new people all the time, so we, we need to re-talk about them. And it's good for us to remember the things that we know. This is a psalm of orientation that even remembers a time that the writer was disoriented. Partly because thinking about all of you and preaching this, um, I went on a run on Thursday, and it felt good. Some of you are like, that's what running is. And I'm like, God bless you for being that well in shape. Others of you are like, I don't run. I don't run often, and it's been a long time since it actually felt good to do it. And as I was later in the day thinking about this sermon, I remembered when I couldn't run because of how sick I was. I could barely walk. And it reminded me that in a season where it feels good to do that, to remember to say a prayer, and to even in that prayer, remember a time that I couldn't do that as a way of orienting and then praising God for that day, even if by the end of the day I was sick, still good to, and I wasn't, still good to remember in our orientation to praise God. What would lead you to pray Psalm 34? Can you imagine circumstances in your life? Like you're in a good spot. 
there were some challenges, you weren't positive, if your plans were going to get you through them? What would lead you to sing Psalm 34? Do not forget, this is one of the most, this is absolutely mind-blowing to us, and we are not brave enough to do it. The Psalms were sung communally by the nation of Israel. And when I say we're not brave enough to do it, Psalm 88 ends with, darkness is my closest friend. Who wants to sing that? Psalm 74, 79, and 137 are full of curses about nations that just were horrific to, to Israel. And we're, we're just not mature enough in our faith to know how to sing about our enemies and trust God to take that seriously. I'm not sure we're even mature enough to sing about our praises. I'm not sure I would have praised God for that run had I not been thinking about preaching about it. Can you imagine work or school or retirement circumstances going so well that you could pray something like Psalm 34? Could you imagine your friend or family or neighbor situations or even your own personal health, which is what I believe Psalm 30 is about? I believe the writer recovered from a season of illness. I hope so. And the reason I'm not going to let the, I'm not going to talk about the context of the psalm is most psalms don't give us any context, and the context distracts us from the most regular purpose of the psalms, which is the most regular gift, which is helping us orient towards God in every circumstance of life. And if that sounds trite to you, it's because you're not familiar enough with the psalms. They're so comfortable being angry and sad, and depressed, and joyful in all circumstances. And it's not just in our prayer time. We do it together. This is part of the reason that we sing. Followers of God for thousands of years have known that it is important for all sorts of reasons to communally praise God and to communally lament, though we're not doing that as much today. It is good for your soul to magnify the Lord with these people. God is so gracious, he not only gives us himself, his personal name is in this psalm, he gives us a community to love and support one another. You're like, some community? Yep, that's church. We are that in need of growth that sometimes we support really well. And sometimes we're okay. And sometimes we miss opportunities. We magnify the Lord and we take refuge in Him. Verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And the word Lord there is in all caps because that's the personal name of God. And this is the gospel. Taste. See. It is belief and experience. Neither in the life of faith can exist without the other. That he is good. I hope that your both belief and experience of that belief, which is perhaps a good definition of faith, and a working like a, a daily working definition of faith, matches up with that. Doesn't mean that you haven't experienced suffering. We're even going to talk about that because of the way this psalm goes. And here's the reality. is not that you either can or can't take refuge in God, though that's true. 
the biblical reality, uh, the, the biblical truth statement that we get to contend with is you're going to take refuge somewhere. And if you don't know where you're taking refuge, then you're taking refuge in yourself. And you get to choose to do that because God is a God who does not impose himself, though he pursues. I, for one, am very tired of the times that I take refuge in myself, not in an ultimate way for salvation, but thinking that I know what's best to do in a situation. At a text situation last night, I had no idea what to do about. So thankful to take refuge, not in my own wisdom or devices, but in the Lord. You're like, where in the wisdom books does it talk about text messaging? It doesn't. You have to work that out a little bit. We take refuge in him and we fear him. And this is so important for us to understand because it's such an unpopular word. It's an overused word. It's often, yeah. Fear in the biblical sense is not to be startled. It's not to be nervous. It's to be in awe of God's power. The first things that Jesus did that terrified the religious leaders were forgive people's sins. To us, I just don't think we understand the gravity of that. If God exists, if sin is real, and he can forgive them, and does, we're in awe of that. And that awe involves, wow, that's a lot of power. And you know this is true. I know you know it's true because everyone in your life that you love has power that you sometimes fear. You may not feel afraid the way that it's talked about colloquially, but you're aware of it. I fear you. Did you know that if you're a member of this church, you could announce a congregational meeting in two weeks to question my fitness? You can. You have that power. You have to give two Sundays heads up. You have to get a quorum. There are numbers and things like that. And that doesn't keep me up at night. I don't think you're going to do that. I'm not actually worried about it. But you do have that power in the same way that the people that you're friends with, your family, if you're married or have children, they have power. And with that power, they either love or withhold, right? This is not exactly what the scriptures are talking about, but it's similar. We're in awe of the power of God. We're impressed in a way that at least sometimes affects our thinking and our emotions and our very being. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Feels a little misplaced in the verse. But it's because David, prior to being uh, set on the throne of Israel, was chased and hounded by hundreds of people. And he didn't like it. He didn't like having javelins thrown at him. He didn't like that his best friend was cursed and mocked for being a good friend to him. And so he found language to talk with God not expecting God to do something, but expecting God to take seriously his complaint. And you might think he's a little gleeful about how it went for him. And that's where we get to grow up and know that God can handle 
all of our emotions and experiences in the moment. I don't know why I said in the moment. When we discuss with him our enemies and our circumstances, we don't need to put a bow on it. Our prayer ought to be a lot uglier than it often is. More visceral. Probably a lot more groaning. In other Psalms, David will say, break their teeth. Have you ever prayed that way? And you're like, I'd be nervous. (laughs) Well, I think you could. And it would be a way of releasing to God how you sometimes feel about your enemies and think about them. We magnify the Lord and take refuge in him. And we do this in song. I was talking with one of my friends recently, and we both have known a lot of famous pastors, and neither of us are famous and we're not ever going to be, and we actually prefer that. But whenever we say something that we think's, you know, relatively well said, we enjoy sharing that with one another. And he said, song is where truth and emotion collide. And I was like, that is good, Phil. Yeah. And I told him one of mine, he's like, that is good, Matt. And we encouraged one another. I'd say it a little bit differently. Song is where truth and emotion overlap beautifully for the people of God. That's why we sing. Those of you that love to sing, I'm so glad. Those of you that are like, I just don't, I do not connect with it. I would encourage you to pray that you could enjoy the song because it is a very important part of your spiritual formation. It's a very important part of our communal experience together. And it's how humans work. If you've been to a baseball game, you know that humans like to sing together. Some more than others. It's part of our shared experience and identity. And that's why God gives us words and then encourages us to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Magnify the Lord and take refuge in Him and fear Him. This has already come up, but it comes up more directly in verses 11 through 17. And all of God's commands, and I I say this a lot, and I say it a lot because it's important. All of God's commands are in this order for his glory, the good of our neighbor, and then for our own good. While you matter, it doesn't begin with you, unless you're going 186,000 miles per second, then you energy. No? Too much? Not delivered well? You matter, but it doesn't begin with you. If God exists, it begins with him. And because God is loving, it doesn't even next go to you. It's for your neighbor. All of his commands, including magnifying him and singing because of the way that your sanctification is wrapped into his plan, is for his glory, the good of neighbor, and then for your own growth and good. And all I mean by that, to those of you that are here on a holiday weekend, is prioritize corporate worship. The Psalms remind us indirectly and directly that corporate worship is essential for your heart and mind. First, they're essential for glorifying God, which is the primary purpose of humans. Our confession of faith asks this great question, what is the chief end of man? And offers, in my opinion, a terrific answer. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the midst of 
this section, 11 through 17, that I'm titling Fear Him, David speaks a lot about the wicked. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all troubles. This is essential theology. It's challenging to understand because we do not ever see it entirely removed from any sector of our lives or culture. But God will not abide evil. It is subtle and invisible to us now. Eventually, it will be conclusive and obvious that he does not abide evil. In the 21st century, there are sections of cultures around the world that the base needs of their lives are so met that they have begun to separate the question of evil. But for most humans throughout most of history, 99%, it's essential for us to understand this about God because we see evil and injustice everywhere. Verse 17, David says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. This is instinctive praise because he's in a a season of orientation, and he knows that in a season of orientation, he praises God for it. But this is where we have the opportunity to remember that this is poetry. And at the risk of alienating half of you, poetry is essential to your life. If we only read the Bible scientifically, not only will we not understand it, and by that I mean looking for exclusive truth claims, we will miss the day-to-day guidance of texts like this. C.S. Lewis wrote a fantastic essay about it. I've referenced it many times. Mundane language, poetic language, and scientific language are all essential for the human experience, and especially for understanding this religious text. I spent a lot of my life trying to treat verse 17 like it's scientific language, like if I will praise God every day, regardless of my experience, perhaps that will settle my heart and give peace to my mind. The beauty of this is far greater than that. This is not instruction for every day. This is encouragement and instruction and wisdom for when you are oriented to the Lord, either because things are settled or because you are out of a season of disorientation. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I appreciate that verse more because there are so many verses around it that talk about seasons of disorientation and enemies and confusion and wondering about where the Lord is in all of it. Magnify the Lord Take refuge in him, fear him, and receive his salvation. In the last four or five verses, David continues to be thankful, verse 18, but also honest. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. How do you talk with God about your enemies? There are people in your life that are not for you. This is so important. How do you talk with God about the people that are not, in your li- that are not for you or in your life? 
I've had many, many people tell me, whether it's the teachings from Jesus on loving your enemies or the teachings of the Psalms where we cast those situations to God, people say, I don't have any enemies. You do. Probably some family. Probably some who like you. They are your friend, but they aren't for you. It's complicated. It's, maybe it's a, a give-and-take relationship. It works, certainly, unless you work for yourself, in which case you do, but that's a complicated, like, you're your own worst enemy kind of a thing. At my 10-year reunion, I remember talking with a friend who I was not a good friend to in high school. And I was subtle about it. I don't know if I was too subtle for him or not. I just apologized. And that's not what the text is getting at, but the text is being honest about those that are not for us. The Bible guides us both directly and indirectly. So directly, don't lie. Indirectly, love enemy. Right? Or that's, that's direct, sorry. Direct teaching, don't lie and love enemy. Indirect teaching is you're prone to lie and you're going to have enemies. This is an indirect teaching. It's not supposed to contrast lying. And learn to talk with God about that reality in your life. We could consider him an enemy. He's not for us hearing one another, or she. In the last two years, I've been going to the Psalms, wondering what they have to teach me about grief. Not because I'm in an acute place of grief, partly because of COVID, and also because the more I think about the Psalms, the more familiar I realize that they are. Almost everyone will touch on all five stages. And every time the covenant is related, is, uh, the covenant is um, referenced in a psalm, I take that as bargaining. I take that as a psalmist saying, God, you promised to do this, and then I experienced life this way. What's up? Where were you? How long is it going to be this way? And that's not because God is bargaining with us, but that's the human response to the life experience we have. And this is a psalm of orientation, but it's one that's very aware of enemies and illness and disorientation. It is good to have expectations of God. They need to be scriptural. They need to be honest. They need to be held evenly knowing or held openly knowing your limits, mostly of understanding. See the book of Job, chapter 38 on that. And yet it is good for our hearts to know how to actively praise and complain and then return to praise. Some of the time, which this is an example of, not every psalm does. Some just end. Because those are the days, sometimes we have those days, don't we? Verse 22 says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Here again, this is the the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus proclaimed more embodied than the psalm. We have the gift of the name of God. There it is again, the Lord, all caps. He redeems. Why? Why does he redeem his people? This is so important. It's not because he's bored. It's not because he needs us to do work, though he gives us purpose. It's because that's who he is. Parents, if you're wondering why kids are coming down, it's because we're going to receive the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Good to see all you.
and I'm almost done. Great timing. Thanks, teachers. We have the gift of the name of God. David reminds us that he redeems, and I remind you that he does that because that's who he is. He calls us his glad servants, and that can sound awkward. Maybe we don't want to be a servant. But if the scripture is true that we will serve someone, I'd rather be his servant than my own. We magnify the Lord together. We take refuge in him, fear him, and receive his salvation. Jesus taught all this even more explicitly than Psalm 34. When he rose from the dead, he proved that the gospel, while it may sound too good to be true, is in fact not. It is true and good and good news for us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we receive these elements, would you help our minds, our very bodies, our swirling thoughts and emotions to actively take refuge in you? Amen.